Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Um, and let's get started. Um, you're going to go first. I need to collect myself. Okay, yeah, yeah. My, I'm all scatterbrained. Yeah. It's had a rough day at the office. You know what? Things are all balled up at the head, oh, head office. Watch out. Uh, well, let's hope that you don't uh, solve them the same way uh, <laughs> as that reference. Uh, yeah, okay, so my first film here is a film that I had never seen before. Um, and will never see again. And w- That might be true, but <laughs> okay. probably not. Um, it is John Schlesinger's Midnight Cowboy, oh, which I, I just saw what? for the I've first ne- time. I've never seen it either. Yeah, uh, we're getting into the, into the section of the, uh, the best pictures um, in which I am, am, have not seen a lot of them. You know, I haven't seen Oliver, which is the next one after that. This is over on More Than One Lesson yeah. at morethanonelesson.com. That's correct, yes. Thank you very much. I didn't <laughs> want to say it, but I appreciate you saying it. Um, and yeah, uh, so you ha- okay, so you haven't seen it. I have not seen okay. it. Uh, it's really good. It is, for some reason, just based on the, the, the culture around it, I sort of expected Easy Rider in a way. Which is to say, dated and useless. Um, <laughs> I love how this is two movie journals in a row where we're really hard on Dennis Hopper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, I was talking with my friend the other day about Speed and how amazing that movie is and how, <laughs> how much of a wonderful villain he is. Like, don't get me wrong, Dennis Hopper's kind of amazing in a lot of ways. And I don't, yeah. and I don't necessarily even blame him for our views on Easy Rider now. Just not every yeah. movie is meant for every age. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently that was not about movies, okay. but, uh, it was about hockey, but they were talking about speed for some reason. Okay. And the host, uh, I, I, it, I stopped me in my tracks cause he pointed out his sort of like dark horse favorite line in speed, which is also my dark horse favorite line in speed, which is when Dennis Hopper is watching the news report mm-hmm. and, uh, it describes the bus passengers being held at the whim of a madman. And he goes, eh, the whim of a madman. I like that. <laughs> I, it's, and the, uh, my favorite line of his is during the train on the train, the subway where he's got Sandra Bullock and then he thinks he's alone. And then he hears Keanu Reeves up on the, on the uh-huh. roof and he's, he goes, Oh, he's so tenacious. He always gets his man. Which like, <laughs> is so exciting. Uh, that's such a good movie. It is a great movie. That is yeah. to me, that is know, like top 10, if not top five action movies. And you know, these lines of dialogue we're pointing out, um, we have Joss Whedon to thank for those, even I though he's not I knew that, uh, Graham Yost is the credited writer and right. Graham Yost has gone on to be a very prolific, uh, writer and film or TV producer in his own right. Mm-hmm. But apparently even he, uh, by his own admission will be like, yeah, m- most of the dialogue you like from speed was written by Joss Whedon. It's about right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well delivered by, but yeah. Oh, everything w- with Alan Ruck. Uh, seems in retrospect seems <laughs> yeah. like uh, Joss Whedon. So uh, anyway, so I expected uh, Midnight Cowboy to be dated like uh, like Easy Rider is, uh, and in some cases it is a little bit, but not really. For the most part, there's a really nice grittiness to it. the The relationship between John Voight and Dustin Hoffman is very effective. It takes a moment. It takes a while to get into because both of them are playing very specific types of characters that aren't immediately relatable and not, not even immediately realistic. But, uh, but the film by and large was very, very effective emotionally. Um, 
because you know, so John Voight is this is this uh, you know character named Joe Buck, who's this Southern guy who goes to New York where he's going to be a gigolo and please all kinds of well-to-do women. Well, all right. He soon discovers, oh, it's I guess it's not well-to-do women or even really women at all that are interested in this, um, and. But the win- I, I did not know that was the premise of the movie. That's well, that's not the premise, but it's oh, you mean even him going to New York for this purpose? Uh, yeah, I, I knew that it took place that it was a guy named Joe Buck because, of course, that's also the name of a sports broadcaster. Oh, okay. And I knew that it took place in New York, and I knew that the I know the one guy is is walking here, right? Yes, which is apparently an ad lib line by uh, Dustin Hoffman when uh, a cab almost actually actually almost killed him. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and so, uh, yeah, that's the premise. Uh, but th- along the lines, uh, he meets this very sleazy young guy who uh, helps him out with with some things and says, hey, I live in an abandoned building. Would you like to come live with me for a while? Uh, and so there's a lot of complexity, but it's also it's, it's a movie of tremendous sadness uh, in, in a good way where – just everybody involved in this thing is just so pitiable. I, I feel like pitiable is a is a better thing to say than pitiful or pathetic. Like mm-hmm. those thing those things seem uh, inherently negative. Um, for example, a young Bob Balaban oh. uh, plays. A, you know, I could barely recognize him, but he plays this young, very meek college student. And it becomes very, like I said, it becomes very clear to John Voight, like, all right, I don't have any money, and now I know what I have to do. So he goes to a certain neighborhood, Mm -hmm. and then this young, meek college student comes up to him and uh, basically solicits his services. Uh, And they're sitting in, like, a a movie theater watching something. And before anything sexual happens, Bob Alaban first puts his head on um, John Voight's shoulder. Uh And it's like, it's... There's this little thing where more so than anything overtly sexual, there does seem to be like a real desire for just some kind of human connection uh, with all of these characters. It is a wonderfully acted film, a very well written film and overall just very effective at times. Maybe it's a bit on the nose or maybe it maybe it pushes a little bit too far uh, to try to get an emotional reaction. But for the most part, I thought it was very effective. I I like I think you'd like it quite a bit. Okay. Speaking of very effective and sad and also angering, okay. I saw a movie that, um, uh, having watched the Oscars, you are very much aware of. I saw a documentary called The Hunting Ground. Oh, indeed. Okay. Um, and uh, it is directed by, like, I think IMDb has it directed by Kirby Dick, but the on-screen thing is Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure what the, if that's just some sort of, the DGA thing, or I don't know what it is about the credits. Now um, I have seen this film is not yet rated, which is a Kirby Dick film, I right. believe. Right. Okay. Um, um, Amy Ziering, that name sounds familiar too. I, I don't know. Um, maybe you're thinking of Ian Ziering. That's who I'm thinking of. Did um, he direct this? No. Okay. Um, I don't know if they're related, uh, but the last Kirby Dick film was the invisible war, which is about, um, right rape in the military and um that it's more prevalent than we're led to believe and is often covered up and uh this movie is about the same thing on college campuses um and it is uh pretty infuriating and it also speaking of our last movie journalism before um we talked about 
even though I overall liked where to invade next, we talk about some of our problems with Michael Moore. Yeah. Um, and uh, Kirby Dick does does these things right in terms of when he has an argument, he backs it up with like, he still does, you know, infographics that are, you know, visually uh, compelling and interesting to look at, but it's all numbers with multiple sided sources with, you know, he's really trying to get across the facts and um, it makes it so much more effective and also so much more infuriating um, when he sort of lays out that between one in four and one in five uh, women, in uh, in on college campuses, women who attend college, who go, women who attend college have a roughly twenty to twenty five percent chance of being sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he lays out how it happens, and you know, very sort of calm. Like the movie doesn't get angry. It's it's almost impossible not to get angry watching it. But um, he, the movie just says, just shows how it happens and I think very wisely points out ways that it's that you almost not morally but pragmatically understand why it is allowed to happen which I think is good because then your anger has you know if you want to take this as a call to activism your anger now has a focus you can Mm -hmm. say these are the things that need to be addressed specifically you know um, because he makes the point in many ways multiple times that it's a it's a very, very small number of college age males who are raping women. It's just that the system is set up that it is in college's financial benefit, either because they want to, um, they don't want to hurt, um, enrollment. They Mm -hmm. don't want to hurt their relationships with fraternities and they don't want to hurt their relationships with the, uh, athletics departments. It's in their financial interest to, essentially cover these things up or at least not investigate them or protect Mm -hmm. things and protect, um, uh, attackers. And so you basically get a small culture of guys who are repeat offenders because they get away with it once and they, it keeps happening. Yeah. Um, and even within that, he shows how, you know, as much as I like, because of the kind of college you and I went to, which is not on a campus and has no Greek system. Yeah. When I hear fraternity or sorority, I picture like bad 80s sex comedies. Like yeah. I, I forget that those things are real and still exist. Yeah. Like it's, it's very so disturbing to, to imagine uh, Bluto Blutarski <laughs> uh, really going after a, a co-ed. Yeah. Um, but even then, he's very overall very kind to the Greek system, pointing out that most, most fraternities do not have these problems. But no. there's two or three, and it's like... Weirdly, not just on certain campuses. There, there are certain fraternities that nationwide have a reputation, mm-hmm. but um, the fratern- fraternities and the Greek system and the money that brings in through alumni benefits and and donations and stuff is the the colleges need the fraternities much more than the fraternities need the colleges, and so they are they turn a blind eye to a couple of bad apples to keep their relationship with the Greek system as a whole intact. And it's, and, and then you get some stuff. I, I didn't know. I mean, this, this speaks to, again, just how ignorant I am of so many things. Uh-huh. Uh, I had no, I thought fraternities and sororities were going away. Like, right. oh, you no, know, and, yeah. and I thought I, I couldn't, if you'd ask me, Hey, do they have a lot of power? My first thought 
honestly, my first thought is like, probably not. I don't know. I mean, always getting in trouble with the dean. Uh, <laughs> but just, I, I genuinely thought it was a, a system that people thought was just like, eh, come on, we're all grownups now. Let's let's move beyond this. But apparently, it has just as much power as it always did. Maybe yeah. more. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, like it has one of the examples is he talks about. Um, in in Congress, there's more. There are more guys who are in the same fraternity, even though it, whether it be at different schools, than guys who like went to the same school. Oh, and so it's like, um, it just uses Congress as an example. But uh, yeah, I guess in the business and political world, people who are in fraternities that's still important to them, even when they're grownups. It's <laughs> like the skulls. Yeah. Uh, and then, but then there, there's facts like there's. Uh, like uh, a pretty much I mean, all but proven attacker who mm. was on the football team. Like they had everything they needed. They just couldn't find him except he was going to practice every day and he was playing the games, but they had a rule that campus security or campus police could not bother an athlete while he's in the athletic facility. So he would just, this guy would just go stay somewhere else where they couldn't find him, stay with friends, like avoid home, but still show up every day for practice and games and be protected. Uh, and that, that's the sort of thing that is, it's in Where does that rule come from? Who comes up with that? Rule? I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how the cops don't, uh, uh, I mean, they, they talk about one example that for, you know, it, the movie doesn't name many names in terms of attackers except for cases that have already gone public where the name is already mm-hmm. known so they talk about the Jameis winston case at florida state and that the the officer who um because his victim went immediately <coughs> uh, immediately to the police to the hospital and to the police to the point where she said like it was so soon after that bruises were still appearing on her as she oh, was wow. in the hospital um and the cop who the officer who um was assigned to the case uh, was a like a booster and a major like uh, he was a Florida State grad and a, and a, and a booster and um, when it, you know when she when the name Jamie Swinston came out like the cops and the school had no interest in uh, in pursuing this at all like there it's were like that scene in Texas Chainsaw where she's running away yeah, flags yeah. down the like, like there were. Um, security cameras at the bar where um, she was uh, roofied or drugged or whatever, sure. you know, that she was, and then he took her from the bar where he'd given her a drink and put her in a cab. And so they could have, they could have checked security cameras. They could have checked with the cab company. They could have like verified her story in multiple ways. And there was, it wasn't Ugh. done at all. And that's just one, one story. And the, uh, the movie is, doesn't, uh, I think very wisely doesn't focus on, any one university. I mean, there's some, because, because the, there's the two women who have sort of, um, uh, rallied a lot of, uh, uh, outspokenness and activism, um, and filing cases, um, under title nine. I don't know if you know, but uh, title nine is the law that says that, um, males and females ha- need, uh, equal opportunities on, on college. Campuses. Oh, sure, sure. And so they're filing cases saying, by um, protecting or not investigating these, you are making the college experience um, inherently unequal 
uh, on gender lines um, by anyway. So the, anyway, I guess whatever gets the job done, it does feel like there's because uh, there's so little. You know. They have so little uh, recourse. Uh, but because those two women are from uh, both went to UNC University of North Carolina, there is a lot of that. But it doesn't. I think Kirby Dick really wants to kind of like um, it reminded me of uh, the movie Flight, where uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Denzel Washington never drinks the same brand twice because uh, I don't know if you noticed that um, hmm. he never be it you know beer whiskey vodka whatever he never drinks the same brand twice in that movie and it's because Robert Zemeckis didn't want to be seen as saying as as singling one kind of either oh, yeah. kind of liquor or kind of alcohol or brand of alcohol out over the others. And so Kirby Dick takes a similar approach here, showing that this happens mm. everywhere. Now I I've have gone on too long about it, but it's like, I've spent two weeks now and I'm still like so angry about it. Now I have a question. Uh, the, the one in five study, I've read articles about that study. Um, well, he cites what, what is it seven from? or eight studies. Seven or eight, okay, yeah. all right. Because I remember and that's, I'd read something that the initial study was deeply flawed. Okay. And then it, it basically polled f- like 40%. It was on a volunteer basis. And okay. so 40% of the female, um, what do you call that? Student body? Yeah. No, that's okay. The, the, the female student body um, from two colleges. Okay. Not like... That's not a huge sample size. No, don't get me wrong. And I and and then someone said that it's actually probably more like one out of fifty, which is still insane. Well, he which gives is still uh, horrible. He gives but a if range. There's other if there's other, other yeah, studies. Then. And I think this is if you if you're the kind of person who's skeptical about a person throwing facts at you, sure. He gives a lot of cites a lot of sources. This is what I was talking about at the beginning, and also gives okay. a range. Like you know when he talks about um um. False reporting, which is okay. something that a lot of people uh, accuse women of when they accuse, especially if, if the person is a, a, a you know a, an athlete or someone who's Somebody in the spotlight. Well yeah. yeah, there's so he cites a lot of sources and he puts a range like it's two to eight uh, percent is what uh, of uh, sexual assault r- reports are um, turn out to be false, which is not out of line with false reports of any other major crime. Sure. Uh, yeah. There's a lot. I, I'm going on very, too long It with sounds this. very comprehensive and uh, it sounds yeah. like a, a film that, uh, I don't know. I, while I appreciated the staging of it, I thought, and we got an email about it. I thought that song was not very good. It's, and just, it's a Diane Warren song, which means it's just <laughs> it's all swinging for the fences, no subtlety. Yeah, playing to the back row. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I don't like that song very much either. Um, yeah, but that but the emotion was, behind it is yeah is that, real. that that thing. I I definitely got uh, teared up at the Oscars uh, with that. All right, I've gone on too long, but that's the Hunting Ground. People, okay, well, I'll try definitely to check it out. I'll try to sum this one, this one up quickly because I've seen it a, a dozen times. Okay, uh, so um, for my birthday. Uh, oh yeah, happy birthday! Thank you. I texted you on your birthday. You did, and I appreciate that. I apologize; I did not respond. No, I wasn't saying that for a response. What I was, because I wanted a response. I was saying that to pat myself on the back because I have forgotten your birthday. I've known you. It's been a while. Seven, like seventeen, 17 years. years this year. I've forgotten your birthday more years than I have remembered it, <laughs> and yeah. I feel bad about that every year. There are times when uh, when I have a birthday party and you think it's just a get together. Yeah. That's not true. Um, yeah, when was the last time you had a birthday party? Uh, it's probably when I was 30. Because um, it's just like, I'm in my 30s now. I'm not going to have a party all yeah. the time. Was that when we went to Tony's? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Jen, uh, for my birthday, 
took me to the Central Coast, to Monterey and uh, various other places, including Hearst Castle, which is where I spent my actual birthday. Uh, And it was a lot of fun, very relaxing. And on the 21st, uh, I've I've really, uh, there's a, what is it called? Like, oh, there's a, no, it's not Fan, no, Fandor? I don't remember. Fathom, Fathom Events, that's the one. Uh, Where there'll be a, a, a revival of certain movies. Yeah. Uh, and so the Maltese Falcon oh. was uh, playing in theaters again. And so I'd never seen it on the big screen. So Jen and I went to see it and the film is of course marvelous. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it's fascinating that that is a film that is almost pure dialogue. Like there's not a whole lot beyond that, which normally would bother me. And yet somehow John Houston, I say somehow it's because John Houston's amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, he finds a way to keep the suspense going, keep the humor going, and make it see- and still make it inherently cinematic. That's the other thing. Like when you've got what is what could simply be a play, and and it keeps you, it keeps me interested uh, through the way it's cut together and the way it's shot. I feel like that's and the the camera's a lot more active than I remember. Um, I don't know. It's, it speaks volumes about, uh, uh, John Houston. I will say a couple of things. Number one, um, the, uh, one thing that was distracting to me was that this was, uh, the screen that I saw it on was a bad crop. Uh, it it kept sort of cutting off like the tops of people's heads. And I remember being like, well, I haven't seen this movie in a while and I haven't seen it on the big screen. Maybe it just does that. And I was like, I don't think so. I seem to recall, remember, yeah, I remember seeing a lot of ceilings, actually. And now I'm just seeing a lot of foreheads. (laughs) And uh, so that was frustrating. Yeah, that's bad. Did you complain? I didn't, because whatever. Uh, I probably should have. But um, I will say, as tends to happen, whenever you go see a revival show, you will sometimes get people uh, making noises or talking or making remarks during the movie uh-huh. that shows you. Oh, that they're big fans. They're big fans. Yeah. Now these were all older people. So this wasn't, these, these weren't like hipsters. These were just people. It was just like, like, uh, I'll see if I just, uh, huh? Like that. <laughs> uh, like whenever Peter Laurie's on screen or something like that, or, Oh, here's Sydney Greenstreet. Like, Hmm. Like that sort of thing. Just recognition of this thing that I love. And I'm glad to see him again. It's like, that's fine. But everybody in the theater has seen yeah. him. Yeah. It just bothers me so much. But the film is marvelous. Uh, I will say, as amazing as it is, I've seen in my top movies in my top 15, I've seen a number, I've rewatched a number of them in the last year. And I will say, I think Maltese Falcon is actually going to be dropping out of my top 10 Hmm. um, in favor of uh, either. Super Troopers. That's the one. Now it's the Broken Lizard one. Yeah. Um, uh, either Dr. Strangelove or Chinatown, two movies that previously were in my top 10, you know, the movies just get cycled in and out depending on how I see them. I still like that you keep a list. I, I don't, I, I started to do one cause I, I would do it every like two or three years. I started to do one uh, for 2015 and, uh, realized, yeah, right. This is a lot of work. And, uh, <laughs> so it's still sitting there private yeah, on I my letter watching more movies instead yeah. of doing this. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was just thinking about the Maltese Falcon the other day because of the fact that like 
when we think of the Maltese Falcon, that's the film we think of. But wasn't it like the third or fourth yeah. uh, adaptation of that? It was the third one. The third one. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's it's funny when we uh, when we when we think that like lack of originality in Hollywood is a new thing. Yeah, it's from the beginning. <laughs> At least then the situation seemed to be we're going to do this till we get it right. And then right. they got, and then they got well, it right. And there, ha- I don't know if there have been any adaptations I, since then. I made that similar joke on Twitter recently because mm-hmm. it was announced that their um, MGM is planning yet another Thomas Crown affair, hmm. and uh, maybe the third time's a charm. Maybe I, they'll finally make a good Thomas Crown affair. I liked the one with uh, Pierce Brosnan and Renee Russo. A lot of people said that when I, I was young it. when I saw it. I don't know. I you probably wouldn't liked, like it now. You liked Full Frontal Renee Russo? Oh uh, yeah, what that's did it, it for you? Yeah, sure. and, uh, that's a movie. It's kind of like um, how I feel, and I know this movie has a lot of defenders, but uh, Michael Mann's Miami Vice feature, mm-hmm. it's essentially like two big set pieces that book book bookend yeah. a whole lot of boredom. Yeah. Well, that's that's how I feel about Thomas Crown Affair. At least, at, yeah, at least, um, is that uh, John McTiernan? I believe that? so, yeah. At least John McTiernan's Thomas Crown Affair isn't as... Um, uh, pretentious as uh norman jewison's like trying to be trying to pull from like 60s art like i never saw that into, one yeah john mctiernan has remade two norman jewison movies isn't that weird with rollerball and uh thomas crown affair <laughs> isn't that weird that is a for strange, the same director yes. to remake two films by the same director and then if you want to look at it a certain way predator is kind of an adaptation of in the heat of the night <laughs> um so, <laughs> all right. Um, Next is you, I believe. Yes, I saw a 1964 Jean-Luc Godard film called A Married Woman. I saw this to review it because it's, um, I guess, been restored and it's going to have another, um, a brief theatrical run, limited theatrical run, um, including, I think, here at the New Art, um, which to me usually means that there's a Criterion disc <laughs> on the horizon, Probably, like yeah. usually when that sort of thing happens, um, or at least some new Blu-ray. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'd never seen a married woman or really heard it talked about, but, um, it's really fantastic. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty short. It's, uh, I guess the, the story, if you want to focus on story is that it's about a woman who is having an affair and finds out she's pregnant and doesn't know if the father is her husband or her mm. lover. Um, I guess that's a story, but really it's more about her sort of, um, moping around and being sort of stereotypically like French and bored and cool <laughs> a lot, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, in a Godard film, you say, yeah, yeah. Um, but then there's also a whole lot of, um, focus on ad- like advertising, like billboards and magazines. There's a lot hmm. of her looking at billboards and looking at magazines and then reacting to them in terms of like buying new bras or just like looking at, it's, there's a lot of bras um and I, this i think it's sort of examining this idea of um her as a a real woman at least in the world and her relationship to all the depictions of um modern womanhood yeah. in advertising um and how she is uh, affected by them or what she what she thinks of them um and i just find that i find that sort of thing so advertising so advertising so interesting that Godard found interesting ways to present advertising. And then I feel like, I feel like the Godard and the new wave in general, like went on to influence advertising in a way, you know, no question. Like to, to, to like, 
when you don't have to necessarily tell a story with filmmaking, you can end up, as much as I've talked about hating commercials on here, um, you can theoretically do things you couldn't do in a narrative film in a, in a commercial. And I feel like there's a lot of new wave in advertising. And so I found that sort of, uh, cycle of things in this film. Uh, interesting that that Goddard could have been thinking about that, but, uh, it is interesting. I feel like he, with the limited, uh, number of films of his that I've seen, um, I feel like he's somebody who is very interested in the iconic, specifically the uh, American iconic. And so, you know, he will create characters that I, that are, that have an iconic quality to them, scenes that have an iconic quality, shots that have an mm-hmm. iconic quality. And so, and, and because he's really, of course, in the, just in the films that I've seen, he's so fascinated with cool. Yeah. Then, okay, so we're dealing with iconic cool. Yeah, all right, advertising's going to jump on that. Yeah. Um, um, and there's a lot of, I, I don't know if this is me looking at it with modern eyes, eyes but at this, but this 1964, there was um, a, a very, just as strong, if different, brand of, uh, you know, strain of feminism running through the culture in that uh, at that time. But the movie starts with, you know, shots of her in bed with her, you know, sort of laying about being French in bed with, uh, with her with her lover, but it's all these like sort of fragments of shots of different parts of her body, mm-hmm. and then you know her uh, lover. I guess I don't know what word to say. Boyfriend, I guess I don't know. I feel like lover is the right word, but it just sounds so corny. It's weird um, that like mistress is a word, but you can't say Mister. Yeah, sounds or master. master. Is, yeah, yeah, you that can't say that. Sound good. Um, but him like sort of undressing her, and then the fact that it also that it goes on to focus on um, women. Uh, being uh, berated with not berated uh, assaulted a barrage of sure. um, information about um, what their body should be and what is the perfect measurement for arms or breasts or like the uh, the there's a part about the proper distance from the base of the neck to the nipple like uh, where she's like just obsessed with her body and this idea of um, not only advertising but also her relationship with her um master with her boyfriend um (laughs) enforcing this idea that her body is something other than herself do you know what i mean that it's like external to herself in a way um i find that really interesting it's a it's a really good movie yeah uh, and it moves along at a good pace uh because it's you know godard in the 60s and he's jumping around and it's only about 90 minutes and it's definitely worth seeing not particularly languid Um, unlike the characters themselves, it would appear. Right. Uh, okay. So next for me is a film directed by, I didn't write the director, uh, director's name down. I think it's Nicholas Hyder. Um, uh, the lady in the van. Oh, really? So yeah. Um, featuring, uh, Maggie Smith. Mm -hmm. Uh, she got some awards consideration here and there. Um, and it is based on a true story about this uh, this writer, Alan Bennett, I believe. Right, who wrote the Hi- History Boys. That's him. Right? Uh, so it's actually, it's based on a play based on the true story, right? I think it's just, I, officially it's based on a memoir. I don't think he ever okay. turned it into a play. Oh, I thought there was a play um, of The Lady in the Van. And uh, maybe it was, and I, and okay. I do not recall. But, um, but yeah, so... Uh, the movie at mom- has moments that are very, very good. Uh, Maggie Smith is great and it's been a while since we've seen her play any character except for the funny wisecracking Maggie Smith uh-huh. you know uh, whereas in this she plays this woman who is uh, who's 
older, she's homeless, she's a little bit crazy, she is intelligent, and she's well-spoken, but she's also uh, a hassle. Um, and she lives in this van that is that she winds up parking in the driveway of this playwright and actor, uh, Alan Bennett. And it's sort of about their relationship, except it meanders in a way that I feel like is, is frustrating uh, to the point. I'm reminded of, um, of The Blind Side, where there's a part in it where Sandra Bullock, uh, one of Sandra Bullock's friends says, you're changing that boy's life. <laughs> and she goes, no, he's changing mine. And I remember being like, he's not actually. You're exactly the same person. You have no arc. I mean, he lives in your house now, so logistically, <laughs> he is changing. He's changing your life. Yes, but it's, uh, uh, is who's, it, who's the it, shaman character from Mystery Men? <laughs> oh, oh, is it uh, West Studi? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the Sphinx. Yeah, the Sphinx. Sphinx. Yeah. yeah. Um, until you learn to master your fear, your fear will become your master. Not necessarily. That's what you're going to say, right? <laughs> and just yeah, West Studi like with shifty eyes is very funny. Um, yeah. So. Uh, and it's, it's like that where you get the impression that, oh, this woman is having such an impact on this guy's life. Now, the more he finds out about her, the more he, you know, oh, I'm seeing her more as a human. That's interesting. But the film has this very strange conceit where there is two Alan Bennett's. There are two Alan Bennett's. There's the one who lives his life and interacts with people. And then there's the writer and they're you know, both played by the same guy. They will be in the same room talking to each other. Oh, and then there's the third one who turns out to be the killer. Exactly. Yes. Trick photography. Uh, and so, so you'll have, uh, these two Alan Bennett's talking to each other about, uh, about how they're going to use the lady in the van, like how they're going to, are they're going to write about her? They're going to exploit her and stuff like that. That's all interesting, except I think it is a huge distraction from, the central relationship between him and the lady in the van. Uh, one of the reasons that adaptation works, and I know you, it doesn't work that well for you, but I think that the, the Nicholas Cage's work and the fact that you have these two of them, even though one of them is actually a lead and one is supporting um, the two of the two characters, uh, it works because there's not this whole other deep, strong relationship that the film is seemingly about. I don't know. It just it seems like there are two movies here mm-hmm. and it can't decide which it wants to do, which it wants to be. So it decides it wants to be both of them, which I think lessens the actual emotional impact. The real, the, the most impactful thing is him and the lady. This other thing of him talking to himself as a writer is interesting, but ultimately distracting. And so the film wound up being kind of a, not necessarily a misfire. It's, it's effective enough in some areas. I just think it was very misguided. All right, um, this one won't take me too long. But speaking of uh, older, uh, idiosyncratic, eccentric, uh, but intelligent women, I saw a movie called uh, Hello, My Name is Doris. Uh, oh, I saw a trailer for out, that. comes out soon. In The Lady in the Van. Oh, um, it's directed by Michael Showalter, mm-hmm. um, which is the, and it has a fantastic cast, yeah. but the, sto- the star, uh, Doris, is Sally Field, who plays a woman who... Um, at the time the movie starts, her mother has just died. She lives with her, lived with her mother, took care of her while she was sick, um, and then worked a, a day job in accounting at a sort of like hip clothing company or mm-hmm. something. Um, and so now that her mother is dead, um, her brother, played by Stephen Root, wants to sell the house 
um, where she still lives, but Sally Field is um, not only emotionally attached to the house, but is also a hoarder. And then also, right after the funeral at her job, um, a new art director starts, played by Max Greenfield. Is that yeah. his name from the New Girl? Or just New Girl? Yeah. Uh, whatever. Um, and she develops an infatuation with this uh, young, younger, cool guy and ends up sort of uh, in trying to befriend him, sort of becoming friends with a bunch of Brooklyn hipster types, which yeah. uh, gives Michael Showalter um, room to make a lot of funny jokes, okay. which is just like uh, everyone's conversation, like cool Brooklyn hipster parties are about what sort of artisanal thing they make at home. Yeah. You know, and they're like, well, what do you make? <laughs> um uh, that's uh yeah that's very funny um and i think the movie is uh i have a hard time really recommending it because i i think it shoots itself in the foot in a couple of ways uh one i think it too often crosses the line into maybe making fun of doris more mm-hmm. whereas other times it's incredible when it said it's best it's incredibly empathetic um and also the other reason that it um, frustratingly doesn't quite work for me is this insistence on the romantic angle. Whereas to me, if the story had been, had discarded her infatuation with Max Greenfield early on and just focused on her becoming sort of a very late in life coming of age as she discovers this new like subculture and is welcomed into it and comes out of her shell and stuff like I guess it still would have been a little hokey, but that's the stuff that works because it's where that's where Sally Field is doing the best work and is able to actually show mm-hmm. this character blossoming. But when you're also forcing her to like stalk Max Greenfield around or like make uh, weird like sexual advances that are clear like clearly unwanted, like if she's is I understand she's not that emotionally um, healthy, but she's not stupid. Like right. it, it just seems like the the romantic stuff seems like. Uh, dumb high concept farce alongside this much more um, touching, but still, uh, you know, oddball um, story of her late coming of age. The, the two, the two sides of the movie just don't work together, unfortunately. Hmm. Um, but the, I mean, there's when you've got this great, I, I mean, I, I just mentioned three of the, cast members it's a huge cast yeah. like there's tiny roles that are played by Kumail Nanjiani and Rich Summer and there's uh um Winnie McLevin Covey is in it and Tyne Daly is great yeah um but uh the best like there's a part that's just um Sally Field and Stephen Root and they have a really emotional scene about that's about their entire life since since their mom got sick and how their lives have diverged and what they expect from one another, why they're resentful of one another. Uh, that's incredibly powerful stuff. And it's like, it's frustrating to see like, uh, why did this movie keep having to drag itself back to its sort of, uh, rickety high concept premise? Yeah. It's a bit of a bummer. Hmm. That's too bad. Uh, okay. So next for me is William Whitney's master of the world. I'm currently working my way through a, uh, Vincent price Blu-ray set. All right. Uh, and so this is a movie based on a story by Jules Verne in which it takes place in the, I'm going to say, I think the 1800s. Uh, that sounds right to me. Um, or maybe the 1900s. Cause, cause the idea, it, it there's a big introduction about like, uh, all the different way, uh, 
uh, attempts at flight um, okay. and how they're, they're, they just kept failing and stuff. And so basically the situation is that Vincent Price is this uh, madman, question mark, um, who lives in this uh, airship and has tremendous uh, firepower and that sort of thing. And he has a, a staff of, of, uh, of followers. And he is very anti-war. So his whole thing is he's going around terrorizing countries as a way of showing his superiority mm-hmm. in firepower. And so he's basically going to say, if you don't destroy all of your weapons, uh, I will destroy you. You know, very uh, day the earth stood stillish. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happens is the the uh, he he brings some people onto his ship. It's also, I mean, it's also very twenty thousand leagues under the sea. You know, right. uh, with him as the the Captain Nemo character. Um, so he brings some people onto his ship. Among them, uh, Charles Bronson. So you know, someone's going to get their ass kicked. <laughs> um, and they have the choice of going along with him and they believe, you know, they obviously nobody likes war, but they also think that this is not the way to go about it. So there's an ideological, uh, battle going on. Um, not to mention there's also some interesting sub fights where of the people that are there, there's four, uh, four people and there's something of a love triangle between Charles Bronson this, I don't remember any of the, any of the other actors. I'm sorry. This one woman and her fiance, and then they just met Charles Bronson. So clearly the fiance and and Bronson have a thing for, for this woman, but they also have their own ideological issue where Charles Bronson allows himself. He allows Vincent price to believe that he is on his side. And then his fiance is saying, no, that's, there's no honor in that. You're just, you're lying. You're doing all these kinds of things. A gentleman, consequences be damned a gentleman always makes it clear where his loyalties lie and charles brown's like okay well then we'd all be dead how is this helpful Mm -hmm. you know and so it's a very there's some there's a lot of interesting philosophical stuff going on um richard matheson i believe wrote the script uh so that should tell you something uh yeah why why it would sometimes come to a grinding halt in order to talk philosophy um that's a joke sorry that is not who Richard Matheson was, but he's a he's a guy who dealt in in philosophical concepts uh, and the idea of moral ambiguity and that sort of thing. So Vincent Price is really great um, playing a character that's sort of his usual thing, but also not. And there's a I don't think of Vincent Price as like a, a noble person. He will often play a nobleman, but a, a very <laughs> a very ignoble one. Um, and so. Uh, but in this, he's very high-minded. He is, in his own mind, a good guy. But he doesn't come off as fanatical either. There's a lot going on with his performance. And uh, the film is kind of hokey at times. But for the most part, I, I liked it. I think it's it's very good. And it's one I had not heard of until I started watching this set. Uh, Master of the World. It's, it's, it's very good. All right. Um, I saw a movie. Listen up, because you're probably never going to hear this movie again. Okay. But I attended the premiere oh. of a movie called dudes and dragons. All right. And it's, it's a, it's, I don't know how to, it like, I think it won an award at dragon con. Okay. So it's, you know, for that audience, um, it's, a but movie. it did only so, so at dude con. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a 
movie that's into, it's one of those uh, like almost entirely green screen um, okay, yeah, yeah. M- movies. Um, so it kind of looks like an extended and maybe slightly more expensive like web short that someone mm-hmm. made. That's about that's in many ways a standard sort of fantasy like you know swords and sorcery and dragons type mm-hmm. of movie, but with where the characters have a modern sensibility. So in that in that way, it's very much like Your Highness. Okay, I'll say this: it's better than Your Highness. All right, but it's also like I I went in expecting like because it's clear like the idea is this is like it's roughly like oh, what if the guys from the hangover were <laughs> fighting dragons okay like it's going for that sort of thing and it's not like the best i can say about it is that it is not as dreadful as it sounds okay it's fairly fairly competently made although that action sequences are stilted um but it's also not it's not remarkably unfunny which is a big thing to me like i hate yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. But it's also not remarkably funny either. It's just sort of, I, I don't really get what, <laughs> I, I guess I don't really get what someone, why someone wanted to make this. <laughs> like, I don't understand what, yeah. it doesn't seem like there's any sort of big motivation or ambition here. It's just sort of like a lark. That's not bad, uh, you yeah. know, but it's also, not, you don't need to, I don't you don't need to see it. I, I, I mainly wanted to see it cause Hey, I got invited to the premiere, which is always fun. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, but, uh, James Marsters who played Spike is the uh, Spike oh, okay. on Buffy. Uh, I just say Spike cause I assume everyone knows it's from Buffy. Obviously. James Marsters played Spike on Buffy, um, is the villain. Uh, and he's great. And he was there for the Q and a afterwards. I stayed for the Q and a mm. probably shouldn't have. Yeah. Um, uh, you could have asked the question, like, so why why did you do any of this? Yeah. You could have asked that and seen uh, how they responded. Yeah. Um, the only other, bit, like, name in the movie is Luke Perry. Okay. Um, and also, like, this is, they clearly got him so they could put him on the poster. This is spoilers for Dudes and Dragons. Um, he's killed before the opening title. <laughs> like, oh, okay. It, his death is the end of the prologue, essentially, that sets up. Okay. Um, the thing, Does like, he get eaten by a dragon? Yeah. All right. He's basically you're introduced to these two guys who are like bounty hunters who kill dragons and other wild like magical beasts for money. Mm-hmm. And Luke Perry is like the dashing, competent one, and he's ah, the yes. other guy who's like the one who sleeps late and gets drunk too much. Um, and then at the end of the prologue, Luke Perry gets eaten alive by a dragon, and so now this other guy, yeah, um, is the guy who has to take charge in killing this dragon that's terrorizing the countryside okay it's I, I, you'll never hear from it again it's, it's it, that's how i felt about so many scripts that i because i i did script coverage for a while and so many of them and i feel bad saying this but just you know this is a this went so far uh this one actually got made you know i find myself it looking took years apparently like they this stuff they shot this stuff in front of the green screen in like 2011 2012 oh wow and then the money and the time to to do the like you know thousands of effect shots and the green yeah. screen took them like four years. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, it's that's the thing. Like by the time I would get these scripts, you know, clearly they'd gone through probably a first, second, third draft, and I would read it, and 
I would feel so terrible because I know the, the amount of effort that went into it and the whole thing in my comments, I would say, cause one of the things that they ask you to say is, is, uh, you know, what's the audience for this? And usually, not usually, I'd say maybe 40% of the time, uh, my response was, there is no conceivable audience for this. <laughs> and, and I don't like to think in those terms, but it's just, there are some movies where it's just like, you've managed to be so specific that it's not merely that you're like niche. It's that the things that you have incorporated in order to make this unique will actually alienate everybody else who might've been interested in the central concept. But then anybody who might be interested in the stuff that you added uh, would be so turned off by the central concept that literally it's for nobody. Um, And while dudes and dragons sounds like it actually might appeal to some people. I mean, yeah. your highness was made as well, but, um, I don't know. It's, it's just, uh, I, I was mystified by these things. Yeah. Um, I will say this in its defense about the title. Um, from what I understand, this movie was called dragon warriors for the longest time. It was, mm-hmm. uh, when Amazon, it, this is available on Amazon as of now. Okay. Um, and I guess when Amazon distributed it, they, I, I, it was at that time. I don't know if it was Amazon's doing, but it was at that time that it changed to dudes and dragons, which to me stinks of them. Like, aiming at a certain like sure. dude nerd uh, audience. Um, Dragon Warriors is a better title because dudes and dragon dudes and dragons gives it this expectation of like, like broy douchey humor yeah. that it actually de- like it maybe once or twice, but it actually isn't that for the most part. So it's, it's, well, there wasn't a that's better than it seems in every way, but it's still not good enough that I can recommend spending two hours watching it. Well, there was two hours. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, there was an old uh, video game called Dragon Warrior when I was a kid that I played and enjoyed. And I wonder if maybe they wanted to steer clear of that name because people thought it might be some kind of adaptation. I don't know. To me, they, if that's a if that's a niche, maybe they could. Yeah, fair they enough. Could've, they could have duped people. That's Asylum true. style. That's true. Yeah. All right. What's next for you? Next for me. Uh, the night of the Oscars, after I recorded with Ian and uh, Jason, uh, everybody was gone. Kung Fu fighting. Oh. <laughs> Those kicks were fast as lightning, <laughs> David. Uh, Jen was asleep, and I had just purchased Spotlight on Blu-ray, so I thought, hey, this is just one best picture. Yeah. Uh, I'll throw it in. So I watched Spotlight, and I don't have much else to say about it, except it's still great. Um, I still respond heavily to it. Here's the thing. Now I have now watched it three times. And it's a movie that I would venture to say I love, but it also is a movie that is easy to love. It's a movie that I don't find remarkably challenging. Given the content, it seems like it should be harder to watch than it is. Except maybe not, because yeah, we are uh, because we are watching journalists who need to keep themselves at arm's length, sort of, yeah. uh, from the material they're reporting on. But I did find myself thinking, like, th- this is a movie that I could find myself throwing in casually, just as I do all the President's Men. And I find myself wondering, and this is, I guess, a question that I'm putting out to you and the listeners, is Spotlight the type of movie that I should be... Th- that 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 I should be throwing in casually. Uh, and I think, I think it's okay because I think it, um, it is very watchable, but without, um, dulling or glossing over what it's covering. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, 
every movie on this subject doesn't have to be deliver us from evil. Right. You know, um, this one might actually reach more people by being so accessible yeah. and by still being, I would say pretty galvanizing. It's kind of how I felt about the hunting ground. Like that's a movie that's, it's very well made and it's the information and the cadence of it are, are very watchable. And yeah. I think that's probably good for someone who's trying to, to get a, get some information across. Yeah, I guess that's the thing is, you know, I'm talking, uh, we're talking here about accessibility and depending on what a filmmaker wants to do. And I think Tom McCarthy wanted to, you know, get the word out, not merely about this scandal, but also the process in which the scandal came to light as sort of a champion of uh, journalism and stuff. Um, But so in that way, the material is by its very nature inaccessible. But if you want people to engage with something that is inaccessible, you have to make the delivery device somewhat accessible. And so Spotlight is a film that, it sounds weird, I feel like I could recommend it to basically anybody. Um, I mean, I would I would give them a heads up and say, hey, there's some disturbing material. You don't necessarily, you don't see anything. Right. But you hear some descriptions and the descriptions are pretty tough. Um, and then a lot of the concepts are tough. So just, know that but beyond that i feel like i could recommend this to anybody and i guess maybe it's the natural uh horseshit online film critic in me that says that's somehow a bad thing right <laughs> <laughs> all right um i watched a movie that i had certainly heard of okay uh, because it was it's one of those uh, movies that was in the public domain so you'd see those cheapo like five buck absolutely DVDs at, at walmart but the film detective has um rescued it and put out a really okay. great blu-ray which they tend to do Film Detective does this with a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. um, and it's a great, great company to do awesome stuff. Uh, it's a noir film from 1952 called Kansas City Confidential. Mm-hmm. Have you have you seen it? I have not seen it. Um, you'd love it. You dig it the most. Um, I enjoy Kansas City. That's not true. <laughs> only the beginning takes place in Kansas okay. City. Um, the the plot, in as far as I care to describe it, is about a armored car robbery in Kansas City. That is. Uh, masterminded to be the perfect crime. There's one guy who organizes everything and no one else, everyone has to wear masks and no one else who's involved knows who anybody else is. Only oh, the nice. one guy knows. And then he gives them after they get the money, he, after they win, he gives them some of their money and some information and gives them plane tickets to like three different countries to go off. And then after a certain point, they're supposed to meet up in another place to divide the money. This is like all very well planned out. Um, and then also they have it set up so there's a Patsy, an unwilling Patsy, a guy who's a um, flower, like floral delivery driver mm-hmm. um, who has a record. And so he gets framed by this, yeah. uh, this the mastermind for the crime. Um, he doesn't. He 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 doesn't end up getting arrested, but he's not too happy about having been framed. Sure. And so he starts tracking <laughs> them down. Um, and he finds one of them and learns enough about this thing that no one knows who each other is um, just in time for that other guy to get shot and killed by the cops in Tijuana. So he decides, I'm going to take this guy's place, go down there, try to get his portion of the money and maybe, you know, exact some revenge on yeah. the guys who framed me. And I, I would dig that the most. <laughs> uh, that's the story. Um, did you ever see the, asf- uh, the Asphalt Jungle? Uh, no, I never did. Oh, you'd love it. Um, John Houston. Okay. Uh, this is uh, by a director named. Uh, it's like <laughs> it's almost like a 
you couldn't have a more like bland name. Unfortunately, the director team is Phil Carlson <laughs> <laughs> from accounting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I have a review up on the, on the website. It's, it's, re- it's just a really solid, uh, movie. And also one of the other, um, crooks, one of the bad guys in the movie is played by, um, a slightly younger than we're used to from the Sergio Leone films, uh, Lee Van Cleef. Oh, nice. Uh, and he's, he's fantastic. So yeah, it's a uh, really, really smart and really sharp, uh, and, uh, definitely worth checking out now that film detective has cleaned it up. Yeah. Uh, cause the transfer looks great. So check out that Blu-ray. All right. All right. Next for me is a film that, uh, has not come out yet and won't okay. come out for a couple weeks. Okay. Uh, it's it called miles ahead, uh, directed by Don Cheadle about miles Davis. And it is a film that in many, as you know, David, I tend not to like when actors direct. Uh huh. Now, uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, Jen, I was telling this to Jen and she pointed out, well, what about Clint Eastwood? Hey, there's exceptions. Sure. Uh, Charles Lawton's Charles. Yeah, exactly. And, um, for the most part, I like when Robert Redford directs. Um, and so, but then there's always the thing where it's just like, okay, here's the one off. Uh, a, an actor feels passionately about material he probably secured the rights to the story as an actor, knowing that I'm going to play this part. Uh, but then, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and direct it as well. Um, and then they go on to never direct anything else ever. Um, and so... I think my favorite actor turned director is Sofia Coppola. <laughs> that's... Hmm, you're being very generous. <laughs> so... The... Uh, yeah, it's... This has that quality to it more as it goes along. But early on, it's directed with a very sure hand. Like a re- it's very visually striking. He makes very uh, strong choices about uh, editing and the way he, the story is going to unfold. Uh, and it basically, uh, in the 1970s, Miles Davis uh, stopped putting out music for f- five years. Mm-hmm. And this is about sort of towards the end of that five years. And he was getting in all, you know, he's getting in all kinds of, uh, crazy scrapes and stuff like that. I don't know how true it is. I guess I'll have to look at the director's statement, except I kind of don't want to. Um, but it's just, uh, you know, he's, uh, waving guns around. He's pining over the, the, the marriage of his that fell apart and all that sort of thing. Uh, and, then there's this music that he had made that is, uh, he just has it on this, on this reel, uh, that everybody wants. And so there's almost like a weird heist quality to it. There's a weird, strange movie, but is this around the time of on the corner that, that album? Is uh, that- I do not know. Okay. But it's a, it's an odd film, uh, as I'm sure people can imagine. Um, the reason to watch it is, is Don Cheadle okay. as Miles Davis, who does do a very good job. Also, Ewan McGregor as uh, a, a rock journalist yeah. working for Rolling Stone. He also does a really good job. Um, it's, it's a good movie for the most part, except it just, the further it goes, the more it starts to fall apart. And in the end, I find myself thinking, right, Miles Davis was a musician. I forgot 
you let me forget that movie and uh-huh. that is not a good thing. Yeah. And so it's, it's a film that I think is, is, uh, I would venture to say deeply flawed. Um, but I think I'd probably still recommend it, but it's, I'm on the fence. Um, my favorite Miles Davis story, probably apocryphal, but it's from, I, the reason I asked if it's on the corner, it's from when on the corner came out that he was approached by a fan who said, Miles, I've been, I, I've, I've dug everything you've ever done. I'm a huge fan, but this new, this new stuff, I just can't, I, I don't know what you're doing. I, I, it's like, I don't like it. You got to go back. And Miles Davis said, motherfucker, I can't wait for you to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but as a fan of the on the corner album, I hope it is. <laughs> As depicted in the film, I can see it. <laughs> so, okay, what's next for you? Or uh, what's next, la- last for you? Last for me okay. is uh, also a movie that hasn't like, come out yet. It's coming out very soon. It's fantastic. Um, this is this is the frustrating thing about this time of year for me because I have very strict rules about um, release years. Yeah, you know. So I will see. You know, I'm see, I'm now seeing movies that I think will will think of as 2015 movies because okay. that's when they were made. But there is no chance for me to see them before now. Unfortunately, um, not that this necessarily would have made the top 10, but it might have um, threatened the honorable mention group. Uh, it's the new film by Arnaud Desplechin, Desplechin, who made A Christmas Tale. I mm-hmm. think it's probably his most famous. It's called My Golden Days. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and it is, I guess, Desplechin taking on the coming of age story. It starts with, in the modern day with uh, Matthew Almerich. Um, I hope I got that right. Yeah. Um, being, uh, he's from france but he is an anthropologist who has lived all over the world for most of his adult life since graduating college and he's coming back to france for the first time and he gets stopped at the airport because there's a passport problem and so he has to go talk to a customs official and ends up that gets him into telling a lot of stories from his high school and college years and so most of the most of the film is told in flashback with um the movie has chapters and so I kind of hate, like, I don't think of the modern day stuff as we've talked about framing devices. Mm -hmm. I don't think of it as a framing device so much as I think it as the prologue and epilogue, if that makes sense. Like it's it's a different, like it's, it, it, they're more substantial than just there to frame the, like they're big chunks of the movie, but most of the movie is, uh, in, in flashbacks as we, uh, see this kid sort of become who he's going to be and have the, romantic relationship that um will um i guess partially define him for the rest of his life uh and it's just a really really well observed uh movie uh, and, and story about what it's like to be on the cusp of adulthood and um experiencing romantic love um and uh, you know you're on that bridge between being a kid and an adult and there's conflicting feelings about how serious perhaps your, this relationship is. Um, and it's, it just gets really, really nuanced, uh, about, about this kid and the, the adult that he'll become. Um, if I have any problems with the movie, then this is the kind of thing that is probably by design, but I don't think it's, um, uh, I, I wish that I that her that his girlfriend character was a little more fleshed out. Mm-hmm. But part of the thing is that we're only seeing her as he sees right, her, right. you know. Um, and the the version of her that has to haunt the later sections has to be the version that is haunting him. We can't, you know, it would it would maybe hurt the movie if we knew more about her personal life or yeah. or, or or more of her thoughts. So 
I, I need to struggle with that a little bit before I write my review. Um, because I do think, uh, it, it's, a, in, t- in terms of judging a movie by what it set out to achieve, I think it's a home run. Okay. All right. That's my golden days. All and right. Listeners like when we repeat the name of the movie because, uh, Oh, indeed. They forget. Um, so you my got golden one more? days on the books. Okay. Yes. I have one more. I saw, because I'm going to be reviewing it for more than one lesson. Um, I saw Kevin Reynolds' film, Risen. Okay. All right. Now, here's what I'll say. I've seen six movies from 2016. Uh-huh. Risen is my third favorite. Oh, right in the middle of the pack. Right in the middle. Now, that's pretty rare for Christian films. Uh, usually they are dead last, and they stay dead last. Unless, of course, somebody releases a half-assed Orson Welles documentary. Um, so... There's a lot of good about this movie. Uh, now, admittedly, it's tough when I go into Christian movies because my expectations are so low. But the, this one has a $20 million budget, and for the most part, you see it. Like You can see that costumes look real, the sets look real. Everything is, is smaller scale. You know, this, is, the, this is not uh, you know, Spartacus or Gladiator or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but... It, that it actually works well to uh, portray the idea that it's just this we're we're at this far flung Roman outpost and nobody there enjoys being there. So you've got Pilate as just this character who's bored and corrupt and a, a, actually a very well developed character. A character that, frankly, I said Spartacus. That's going to be the companion film when I talk about it. Okay. Uh, Charles Lawton and Spartacus, basically. Um, and then you have, have Joseph Fiennes as this uh, Roman uh, centurion whose job it is. What I like is that the movie basically starts with, and it's it follows this guy completely. It starts with um, him being told, like, "Hey, uh, there's this guy who this upstart who's currently being crucified." go up and make sure that his followers are nice and calm and that sort of thing. So he goes. And so the first time we see Jesus, uh, by spoilers, when I say the first time we see Jesus, he's dying. Uh, and the film is called risen. So, uh, Jesus here played by uh, cliff Curtis, by the way, nice like to see him. him. Uh, so yeah. Uh, so we start with that. So the character, uh, so Joseph Fine's character knows nothing about this man, doesn't care for the most part. But then when, you know, his body disappears, his job is to, uh, f- his job is to find the body. Otherwise, uh, followers might get word of this and they might think, Oh, uh, well maybe he is, uh, maybe there is a miracle going on here. Maybe he is the Messiah. So Joseph Fine's job is to disprove that. And, you know, it's a Christian film, so obviously we know going in that he's not going to disprove that and blah, blah, blah. Um, here's what I like is that in many ways it's a procedural. I mean, he interviews a lot of people. He, he digs up bodies uh, with, his, with his, uh, his assistant. That's not the word. Meant protege, whatever that you want to mm-hmm. say. Um, played by Tom Felton. Right, whose character name I'm seeing is Lucius. Yeah. Which was... Draco's father's name. Yeah. That's something, huh? And uh, Lucius Malfoy was, you know, a servant of Voldemort played by Rafe Fiennes. Oh, yeah. What do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty complex. Tom Felton has worked with both the Fiennes Fiennes boys. 
Yeah. So, so the, the, the story is, I'll say this act three, it starts to really kind of fall apart as far as structure and that sort of thing. Film is very well acted basically across the board. Um, the guy they have playing Caiaphas does a great job. The guy they have playing Peter does a great job. Um, art direction works really well. A sense of place and time. Uh, it's cut together, uh, pretty effectively. And, and the story keeps moving again. It's a procedural, which means there has to be constant forward momentum there. It is there. Um, again, it starts to fall apart a little bit as tends to happen in Christian film. Once characters start to actually become Christian, everything gets worse as far as, <laughs> as far as the filmmaking. Uh, but for the most part, I was, um, I was, uh, impressed by it. And, you know, the thing that people often say about uh, the people that don't know what movies are, uh, will often say, Oh, this is a film that I can show my non-Christian friends. Well, technically that might be true. <laughs> uh, you can show your non-Christian friends, anything yeah. that doesn't mean they're going to like it. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that I could show my non-Christian friends risen and it would really have an impact on them. But at the very least, I feel like I could show you, I could show you risen and okay. you could at least acknowledge where the filmmaking is good and say, Oh, that was actually a very emotionally satisfying moment right there. Um, and previously that's, that that's pretty much unheard of with, with Christian film. So risen is, you know, there's something to be said for, uh, a higher budget and, and it's directed by Kevin Reynolds, right. who did Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. He did Waterworld. He did, um, Oh shoot. He did, well, he's done several, but other notable films. The Count of Monte Cristo. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. And then a movie that I completely forgot existed. One eight seven. One eight seven. I saw that. I, I did not see it. Yeah. I'm looking at his filmography right now, and I'm like, oh right, that movie. Yeah. I did. like none of these movies are very good, but he is a real director who at right. least understands how the camera works and how to direct an action scene and stuff like that. So, Risen. It's it's I, it's hard to say that I'd recommend it because obviously it's a Christian film. So if you believe that stuff, then um, as I do, I don't mean to be dismissive of my own beliefs. Um, then it might it you know, go ahead and go see it. But, uh, I don't know. It's tough. We are, we are now getting to a point where while there are a lot of terrible Christian films, cause in a couple of weeks I will be seeing God's not dead too, which looks <laughs> potentially worse than the first one, which is really saying something. Um, I'm, there's no subtitle for it. God's no. not dead too. Oh man, that's no. too bad. Missing out. I know. I feel like it stuff. doesn't, it does feel like there should be, you know, back in the habit or something like that. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> So it's uh, so there's a lot of bad ones being made, but now that you know there's this movie Woodlawn that is, again these movies aren't great yet, but you've got Believe Me, which I actually liked a lot, Risen and Woodlawn. So now I'm being faced with a different issue because when they were all when they were just terrible, it's like well obviously nobody should see them ever. Uh-huh. Um, but now that there now that there are some good ones out there, now I am faced with this problem of. Uh, to whom do I recommend this film? Christians. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's it. Okay. Because that, that's the thing is. It, but you've I, recommended Believe Me beyond just Christians, right? Yeah, but it's a comedy that, that is funny. Okay. And I feel like comedy has the ability to just to unite anybody. Um, whereas this is a, it's a sword and sandal drama. It sounds you know. like Kevin Reynolds drops the ball by not uh, encouraging his actors to ham it up a little bit. 
Well, hang on now. <laughs> There's a couple characters that uh, that's true. It does need to be. It's pre- and definitely Joseph Fiennes, who I think is a is a limited actor, and I think he he's got the scowl down. Uh, it's I mean it, it seems like he's miles away from the, the the vibrant upbeat performance in Shakespeare in Love, and ever since then he's just been. It's all scowls. It's all clenched jaws and stuff and what, like that. His performance isn't bad. What do here. we like him in? Joseph Fiennes. I like him in Shakespeare in Love. Hmm. Uh, I saw him in Enemy at the Gates. He's fine. Uh, I saw him in Luther. He's fine. Again, he's just not that... I don't think he's that dynamic of an actor. Yeah, I can't think of much that I have but liked his, him in. But his performance is here. It, it, here is good, and it's and it's consistent. I don't know. This is a this is a thing that I'll, I'll probably be troubleshooting on more than one lesson this week, uh, is, is this a film I can actually recommend to people knowing where it came from, what its goals are like, you know what, actually here's David, let me suggest something or a request. Will you go see risen and, li- and let me know what you think? Like go pay to see it. Uh, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think I have time. Tell you what, if you pay to see it, we'll make sure BP pays for it. You know, okay. you shouldn't well, be at that, uh, at that money. Uh, I'll think about that. So, cause I, I cause I need to know at this point because i'm curious now okay i don't i obviously don't think it's going to be philosophically resonant with you but maybe it's emotionally resonant with you at this point i have no perspective all right did you want to talk about any tv well there's amazing race now i'm the one who wants to talk about amazing race so take that well i guess because i already did a hey watch this on this episode oh okay Um, all right yeah yeah well what, what do we want to talk about uh i'm enjoying the season for the most part uh yeah me too there's a lot of teams that i'm rooting for um, there's a few teams that I still don't really like that much. Uh, even when team, the teams that have gone out, I have for the most part liked, but they've gone out on such stupid errors, um, that I feel like I, I can't, I can't mourn them, you know? Uh, cause yeah. it's like, yeah, it was, if it wasn't this, it'd be something else. If they have an error, this glaring in them, they weren't going to win ever. So See, I hesitate to say that because a part of me thinks I'm going to be on the show someday and I uh, don't want to be on record saying that. And then I make a, uh, and then I pull a boner like that. This is why I never do anything that I will criticize, uh, <laughs> because better safe than sorry. Uh, yeah, but this, yeah, the, the, the two, the, the two brothers who, um, I'm saying that because they are brothers, yeah, um, yeah. not because they're black guys, yeah. um, who got eliminated. That was a painfully, like I felt bad for them but i also wanted to yell at them or just him yeah yeah just the one because the other one that's the other thing that's painful about it is the other guy knows what his brother is doing wrong but by the rules can't help him you know what i don't I mean? think i don't think he knows immediately actually not immediately but he does eventually once, yeah, once yeah. other people start checking in at the right place yeah. he obviously knows where the place to check in is and has to watch his brother go right past it multiple times that's got to be terrible just horrible to just know to just watch just watch you watch your team lose. Yeah. And it happens pretty regularly where one person just is just not, something's not clicking yeah. and the other person's like, has to be like, Hey, you got this. Well, that's the best you could be like that. Or you could be like the two dancers last season when the woman couldn't do the diving yeah. challenge. Or you could be like the guy a few seasons ago who like browbeat his wife cause she couldn't drop oh, a thing yeah, out yeah. of a helicopter. That's or right. An airplane. The doctors, right? They're both doctors. And he was so patronizing was to re- her patronizing seems generous i think i mean may at best condescending um yeah he was he was awful 
Yeah. Um, and then I started that season liking those two, but, uh, but then he really, uh, turned yeah. me off. Um, but no, I, I like a lot of the people this, this season and, uh, I'm rooting for, like I said, I'm rooting for a number of teams. I really thought that this, uh, this online star thing was not going to go well. And don't get me wrong from time to time. There's someone that will act in a way that I'm like, ugh. you still hate that screaming kid. Ugh. I don't, I don't he hasn't that. had much to scream about, so <laughs> I'm good with him at the time at the moment. But, yeah. uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited for this season. It's also, I've been watching survivor. You can hear about that, uh, worth playing right. for Uh really good season of survivor as well. Okay. Um, I'm really, in, I'm really glad that there was a, um, first, uh, episode non-elimination because that team, I find them delightful. For Do some, you? Yeah. For some reason, like a, father daughter relationship like that just seems so sweet. Like that what, like he wasn't around as much when she was a kid cause he was working a lot, but he clearly like dotes on her. And, yeah. And like, and I guess she's punishing him by having him carry all her unnecessary stuff. <laughs> that see, I, you I, literally I, just slapped your leg because I understand why you find that like, uh, like annoying, but I, for some reason I find it adorable uh. that he's willing to carry her hair dryer on the amazing race. No, his willingness is fine. It's her willingness to have him carry it. That bothers me. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's, he's enabling her. No, I, you know, I, I, it's, that's 100% true. And yet for some reason I just find it so endearing. <laughs> um, yeah, this is why I like, I, this is why I can't have kids. Cause I would, uh, probably spoil them rotten you think so especially in a world that is so hard for women i think if i had a daughter she would be spoiled rotten and it's like all right daughter now go out and make the world bad for everyone else <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it's uh, time to get yours yeah so okay well this was a lot of fun talked about a lot of movies yeah my brain's still scattered from work but uh we'll hopefully correct that next time we'll okay. get there